Hey guys, David Reeves here. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. Hope you enjoy. And remember, you can catch a new episode every Wednesday at noon central on all your streaming devices. Most of these podcasts have visuals, so if you want to see the entire video, check them out at creationsuperstore.com. They're available on DVD or digital download. All right, let's get to it. Hello, I'm David Reeves, host of Wonders Without Number. In each episode, we talk about breaking discoveries in science, which reveal that our Creator, the God of the Bible, has left a pattern of His fingerprints throughout the universe. Check out our other resources at davidreeves.com. Sign up for email updates to have encouraging nuggets sent straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free monthly magazine and like us on Facebook for daily inspiration and education regarding science and the Bible. Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington State in 1980. Let's talk about the environmental impact and also the ecological regrowth that took place after the blast. Joining me for this conversation, I brought in a guest and friend, Paul Taylor. We'll find out more right now on Wonders Without Number. Welcome to Wonders Without Number. I'm David Reeves, and today we want to inform and inspire you regarding the wonders that we find all around us. An infinite number of wonders that point us directly to our Creator, the God of the Bible. You know, God's fingerprint can be found everywhere we look, from the farthest galaxy in the cosmos to the microscopic world of genetics and DNA. Ultimately, all scientific fields are drawing us closer to an understanding that the universe shows these design patterns exactly what the Bible says, that includes you and me. You are wonderfully made by the God of the Bible. We're giving you the tools that you need to defend your Christian faith, and we're going to kick it off right now with today's Heavens Declare as we look at Venus, the morning star. The planet that we call Venus has such a special place in our solar system that it appears Jesus himself refers to it as a symbol of his own majesty. I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. It has intrigued us since ancient times, and even today it remains a planet of fascination and mystery. Now, you may recall from your astronomy classes that the Earth is the third planet out from the Sun. Venus is the second. So, its smaller orbit keeps it always on the sunny side of our view. This is why the farthest that we ever see it from sunrise or sunset is just three hours, making the titles Morning and Evening Star a perfect fit for Venus. Venus is the third brightest object that we can see in space. Of course, there's no competition for the sun, since it provides practically all of the light in our neighborhood. And then the moon is so close that it has an easy time shining on us. Next comes Venus, our closest planetary neighbor, and even nearer than the sun. This alone helps it shine well. But then we add the fact that Venus, its thick atmosphere, reflects about 70% of the sunlight. As a comparison, the moon reflects no more than 12% of sunlight hitting it. Now, if it was as reflective as Venus, we probably would never get to sleep during a full moon. 
There are so many fascinating things about studying Venus, I don't have time to touch on all of them today, but I'll share just one of the earliest. You see, civilizations have recorded their observations of Venus and its motion as far back as post-Babel Sumerians. But it was with the invention of the telescope that the era of modern scientific discovery began. Galileo was the very first to turn his newly built telescope to Venus, and his observations became part of his case for changing the way that Western scientists viewed the universe. It had become popular to assume that the Earth was somehow fixed in space and at the exact center of the universe. Complex equations helped to make sense of the way that planets and the sun changed position in our sky. But some observations, they were really, really difficult to fit with this model. Then. Galileo was able to observe the, the phases of Venus. Just like our moon, Venus doesn't reflect sunlight from the entire side facing towards us. If you think about it, the only time we would see a full Venus would be when it's on the, the far side of the sun from us, and then we would have to observe it in daylight. So the times that we can clearly observe Venus, it glows in either a crescent or a half circle shape. So these discoveries weren't enough to convince everybody right away, but Galileo's observations were the first clear evidence that Venus was circling the sun rather than the Earth. And it began to break European astronomy free from this man-made inflexibility. Just a few more interesting facts about one of the most fascinating objects in the night sky. I'm David Reeves. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. Our testimonial today comes from Sarah who says, This ministry has greatly helped me in my faith by helping to answer several questions and doubts that I had. I wasn't sure how the Bible fit with what I was taught in school. I didn't want to completely give it up, so I was plagued with thoughts and theories about how they could fit together. But now I know that they really don't. What I was taught was completely wrong and biased. I'm so happy that I've been able to see that. I'm much more comfortable in what I believe now, and it's helped me really see the beauty in God's creation. I think this is great for any Christian who's been fed contradictory, quote, facts and doesn't know what to do with them. This is especially good for younger people who are going through school who are beginning to question what they believe, like I was. Thank you, Sarah, for that. That's, that's the problem with the public school system and colleges and universities today, in America alone, over 60% of biology professors are self-professed atheists or agnostics. Now, I don't care how unbiased they try to be, that ideology spreads to the young students in that class. And that's a dangerous thing because it ignores much of the evidence that has been discovered in biology, in genetics, in microbiology, that is pointing us back to the truths of God's Word. Now let's meet my guest. Paul is the director of Strong Tower Ministries. Originally from the UK, Paul does an excellent job analyzing Darwin's life and legacy. He's the author of the book, Where Birds Eat Horses, and he's led hundreds of tours to Mount St. Helens, studying the impact and environmental regrowth that took place after its eruption in 1980. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Thank you for having me again. I, I love having you on to share your perspective uh, you've been a friend for some years now, and uh, particularly when it comes to Mount St. Helens, you have a lot of knowledge because you've done a lot of study, and you've been at that site for a number of years leading tours. Tell me about yes, that. Yes, well, for five years I was the director of the Mount St. Helens Creation Center, 
and uh, the, the purpose of the centre is, uh, is to help Christians to understand that they can trust the Bible from the very first verse. There are many other ministries, your own, that do that, but uh, we, they, they, they do that there from the foot of the mountain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, one visitor said uh, a number of years ago, uh, after having been on one of the excursions, uh, she said, um, well, I believed that Genesis was true before I came here, she said, but uh, having been here, I believe it even more if that were possible, she said. Uh. It's as if, it's a place where it's as if you can reach out and touch the book of Genesis. Absolutely. And There's that, something yeah. to that, That's tangible, right? right? Now, now, some people would criticize you there because they would say, oh, you know, but, but Christianity is all about faith. We have faith in Christ living, dying, being raised again, absolutely. We have faith that what the Bible says is true as well. Yes. But when it comes to what the Bible says, that's not a blind faith. The evidence is literally all around us. It is, and you can go to Mount St. Helens and you can see that. And just because I'm not there anymore, uh, moved on to uh, a new ministry, uh, the Creation Center is still there, and uh, my good friend Pat Roy is now directing that ministry. And so there are still excursions going out to the volcano. You can still find out uh, uh, the wonderful things about the volcano and be, and. and get that same experience of being able to reach out and touch the book of Genesis. <laughs> I love that. All right. What can visitors, and this is a must-see for anybody thinking about visiting the mountain, uh, I want you to give us some advice. What should people see when they go there? What are some essentials? You first of all need to see the Creation Center and okay. get the interpretation there. And uh, uh, we have three guidebooks there to the mountain, uh, different different aspects of, uh, of the mountain. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you need to then go out on one of the excursions. And uh, we've t uh, the, the only um, sort of minor problem, which is completely unavoidable with an excursion, is that you're quite often seeing the story of the day in reverse order. In many ways, it would be nice if you could go from the Creation Center into a Doctor Who's TARDIS and start in the crater <laughs> and move <laughs> outwards, because that's the way that the blast went, that's the way the landslide went. So maybe you could ride on top of the landslide going out <laughs> and see the mud flow, see the devastation, and then see how it affected things 50-odd uh, miles away as the mud flows came down. Clearly, you've got to do that in reverse order. You're going inwards okay. where well, you can see uh, houses that have been damaged by the mud flows coming down the rivers. You can see the effects on the rivers of how they were diverted, flattened, changed considerably by that. As you get closer to the volcano, you can see effects on the ground uh, damaged by the landslide, the hummocks area, yeah. large hills that you can walk through, uh, that you can walk between uh, in an area close to it. You can see uh, Spirit Lake that was uh, actually all the water was washed out of the lake and came back. And you can see the logs that were picked up by the lake water. You can see them floating on the lake. So you could see all these effects and, you know, it's too many to just say really in one, uh, brief, one brief answer to your question, but there's so much there that's worth looking at. Some of this can be driven to, there are some yes. uh, visitor centers as you get closer to the mountain, uh, are there some viewpoints I might say? There are several viewpoints, okay. but it, it's very helpful to have somebody with you who knows that or to have one of the guidebooks so that you can have that interpretation, you can see what happened. And I spent quite a bit of time when I was there picking up eyewitness accounts from people who yeah. uh, lived locally who told me what actually happened and I've included those. That's great. What are the best ways? I know you can approach from several different directions. Yes. Uh, what's, what's your favorite? 
Um, there, there, I, I really boiled it down to three main excursions. There were variations on them. Uh, the, the west side is the most popular, mm -hmm. uh, starting from uh, Interstate I, I, uh, I-5, uh, because that's where they've got proper roads. <laughs> Okay. Covered yeah. with asphalt. Yeah. That's the t main tourist route that they keep open, and uh, but from the interstate to get to the Johnston Ridge Observatory, just five miles north of the volcano, is fifty miles. So oh. it's a long trip, and you've got to go up a slope, uh, which is uh, uh, a, a at least a five percent gradient, one yeah. in twenty gradient, for over twenty-five miles. So you've got wow. to have a pretty good vehicle to be able to do it. Um, I've driven with school trips where they've had uh, battered up old yellow buses that haven't made it. So, uh, oh. so uh, your ordinary cars will make it. Yeah. Um, that's the most popular one. Most of our trips are on that way because it's the main tourist route. But you can also go around the south of the volcano. Okay. The roads are not as good. Uh, there's large holes in them. But around the south of the volcano, you can see there evidence from a previous eruption, which we think was about 2,000 years ago. And round the east side is my favourite, though. That's why I've left that one to last. <laughs> and round the east side, you might say, well, you, in many ways, you're seeing some of the same things you see on the west because we're talking about the regrowth of the area. Mm -hmm. However, the thing on the east side is it's so very remote. So a lot of the trees that were knocked down have not been picked up. So you're getting a, oh, a, a okay. feel for what happened at the time. You know, there's a car that was damaged. It belonged to a group of miners. The miners were all killed um, by the blast uh, and their car was thrown off the road. Wow. And where it's landed now, they've made like an archeological feature out of this car. Uh, you know, and fenced it around. You can see that. You can see the effects uh, on uh, the, the, the general public in the area. And it's just fascinating to drive in from the east. Hi, I'm David Reeves, host of Wonders Without Number. Like what you're seeing? You can find so much more on the Creation Superstore. You'll find over a thousand books, DVDs, and other quality resources on origin science, creation, and Bible history. Whether you're looking for nature documentaries, educational books, homeschool resources, or children's videos, we've got it all, so be sure to head over and check it out. Use this special promo code to receive 10% off your first order. Okay. Uh, from the west, as you're getting closer to the mountains, you go through um, a, a popular hiking trail that takes you through the hummocks. Yes. Tell me what that is. Well, the hummocks are fascinating. Uh, when the landslide came out of the mountain, it works a bit like a fluid. So like tipping a bag of flour down a slope, you expect it to stop in lumps. It's not exactly like a liquid, but it is a fluid. But it stops in lumps when it loses energy. Huh. That's what the landslide did. It was moving like a fluid. So you've got these hills, these lumps called the hummocks. Now, at the time of the eruption, these were all gray, as you might expect, the material from the mountain. Yeah. In fact, the area looks so devastated that many scientists looked at that. Uh, and it was reported at the time that scientists were saying nothing is ever going to grow there for a thousand years. So there were a thick forest through this area. They yes. were all completely buried, snapped like twigs, moved, stripped of all the branches. That's on the hillside, okay. yes. The hummocks area uh, is, is slightly different because the hummocks area is where the valley was filled in. Okay. So if there were any trees still there, not incinerated, they'd be underneath that area. Okay. So this is just an area of debris from the inside of the volcano. 
and it looked very barren. Even one of the, even the Completely president great. at the time had a comment about. Yes, yeah, so the pre uh, president Jimmy Carter visiting the area said that it made the surface of the moon look like a golf course. Oh wow! And this is the area that you had there, and it's easy to find photographs of that. Yeah. You do Google searches and anyone can verify this for themselves. This area certainly looked completely barren, completely gray with all these hills that had been uh, in this area that had been filled in. You said those studying the environment there, some of them suggested that it might be as much as a thousand years before yes. significant regrowth would take That's place. That's right. Now you and I walked through that and uh, you, you did some filming there. We did. It's not gray today, is it? It's, it's like a forest again. It is. Uh, there's a lovely spot that I like to spot, which uh, that I like to stop people, and I think I stopped you there. There's a, you're in the middle of this valley mm -hmm. between two large hummocks. Down at the bottom, there's this tiny stream, and there's a little wooden bridge, a very pretty little wooden bridge, bridge mm -hmm. that they built on this trail. Uh, one uh, friend of mine uh, um, uh, has told me there are seven varieties of ferns in that valley. Wow. You've got all these trees. You stop and you listen. You've got the rippling of the brook. You've got some birds uh, chirping away. And I stop people there and I say, how many thousands of years has this wood been here? Uh -huh. And of course the answer is that if they'd been stood on that spot in 1981, yeah. there would have been no trees there at all. Uh -huh. The shape would have been the same in 1981. Yeah. Uh, if they'd been there in 1979, however, they'd have been floating about 300 feet up in the air. <laughs> above trees. Above trees, because wow. that area was filled in. So this is an environment, a landscape, an entire ecosystem, which is only 40 years old. Incredible, incredible. Okay, so 40 years of regrowth. Talk about how that took place, because uh, Forestry Services tried to replant some things, but then there was a gopher involved and then a, a, a lupine, am yes. I saying that correct? Tell me about this. Well, they, uh, they, they were not allowed to plant in this area where they declared the National Volcanic Monument, okay. uh, which was declared in uh, uh, the fall of 1982. Uh, and uh, so nothing has been planted in that particular wow. area. It's grown back by itself. Yes, gophers are very important there. The pocket gophers were buried underneath this hundreds of feet of debris. They managed to uh, dig their way out. And of course their droppings contain many of the seeds for trees and things. Oh, wow. The prairie lupin is one of my favorite things there, though. It's got these tiny little spidery blue-green leaves. From a distance, if the plant is not in flower, you can't see them because they're against the grayness of the rock. You can't see them. Uh, okay. When they are in flower, however, Again, you can't see the leaves from a distance, but you can see a blue carpet of these beautiful huh. blue flowers. Then you get closer, you see the spidery leaves, you see the tiny flowers only so high. The whole plant itself is no more than about three or four inches high. Wow. But that plant is responsible for the regrowth of that hummocks area. Really? Yes, uh, and it's fascinating. And it's something, of course, scientists at the time should have thought about and should have realized, but it's still something I like to tell people about. All lupins, of course, are members of the legume family, which also includes peas and beans. Okay. Um, but the, the, the prairie lupin is by far the most widespread over that area, uh, sometimes referred to as the alpine lupin because it thrives in mountainous conditions. It is a legume. That means it produces its own nitrates. Now, 
Ooh. Now here's the thing, the okay. soil does not contain nitrates. It's come from the middle of the mountain. It's got the phosphates and the potash that you need. You know, yeah. the N NPK numbers you get on fertilizers. Yes. Yeah. The first letter though, the N, zero there because the soil has no nitrates in it. Okay. So plants shouldn't be able to grow. That's why it was supposed to take a thousand years to grow. These lupins make their own nitrates so they can grow. Except that's not true really. They don't really make their own nitrates. They produce little nodules in the roots which are invaded by a soil bacteria called rhizobia. The rhizobia is able to get the nitrogen gas from the air and fix it into nitrates. So the lupin grows because it's got these nitrates in its roots from the bacteria. When it dies, the nitrates go into the soil so that other plants grow. Wow. But here's the key. The rhizobia, of course, doesn't do this out of the goodness of its own heart. <laughs> it does it because it's trying to reproduce and it can only reproduce when it gets special sugar chemicals that only the lupin makes. Really? Okay. So. Basically, to, to summarize what I've said, the lupin cannot grow without the rhizobia. The rhizobia cannot exist without the lupin, which evolved first. Uh, it's a chicken and egg problem, exactly. basically. It, it's, it's obviously what we know refer to as a symbiotic relationship. It's well known. High school biology should be know it. The scientists then should have known it. The prairie lupin is the one that's done the most in that area. It's not the only one. There's also larger lupins, um, arctic lupins. There's also two different varieties of clover in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's all those legumes. There's even a variety of tree there, which is very fast growing, the uh, red alder tree, mm -hmm. which is itself a nitrating plant, has a different set of bacteria working with that. But all those plants are working together to put nitrates basically into the soil so that other plants grow. And that leaves us today with uh, this wonderful ecosystem. And to my way of thinking, that is almost maybe even as interesting and spectacular as the eruption that caused the devastation in the first place. Absolutely, and also telling and uh, scientifically important yes. uh, for consideration. Uh, there's also, when I was there, lots of worms. What, what are those worms? And, and many trees, so many worms. Yes. Um, I think they, they were probably a, a variety of uh, caterpillar from the gypsy moth. Uh, okay. I think that's what they were. And um, they, they have this almost spider-like um, yeah. web that protects the, uh, the nest of the eggs. Very fascinating. Um, not so nice when you're sat having a picnic, say, at the, uh, the banks of Coldwater Lake and they're dropping from the, uh, <laughs> uh, the trees above you. It's raining caterpillars on you while you're sitting at the picnic benches. But they are very interesting. We had some fun times trying to film out there. Yes. Okay, uh, we've talked about the environmental regrowth. Let's talk about the importance of all of this from a biblical perspective because you just said we've got mutualism, symbiotic relationships working together. It appears that uh, all of these different organisms that we believe God created in the beginning uh, are working together. Yes. How does this impact us when we're so concerned about the environment today yes. to the point that many are saying, oh, well, we need to do away with fossil fuels. We need to uh, we need to do away with air travel. We need to do away with anything because we are impact negatively impacting the environment. Yes, um, human beings do impact the environment. Um, there is a lot of nonsense spoken in the way of environmentalism, which I'll mention just in a second. But um, it is true that we have stewardship 
over creation. Yes. You know, we do not want to pollute the world. I hate it mm -hmm. seeing landscapes where there are tin cans lying Absolutely. around, things like that. We, we should um, deal with that. That's part of our biblical stewardship. However, I like something that I heard Vody Balcom say at one mm -hmm. time when he said, if you see a landscape, a rural landscape, but it's maybe a farm landscape because human beings have shaped it, he says, that's glorious. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it's more beautiful than the wilderness because human beings have done what they're supposed to do and had dominion over God's creation. And that's the correct way of looking at things. It's stewardship is, is the correct environmentalism, not a, an, a, an, an evolutionary type, almost worship of the environment, but our, us saying we are in control of it. Let's use it for our benefit and also for the glory of God. Such an important point. Thank you, Paul, for being here. As we've seen, good science confirms the existence of a creator and the fact that life could never have just formed by itself. We as human beings are far more than complex machines. Mankind was created in the image of God, fully developed in the beginning with the ability, I might add, to know right from wrong. As we know from scripture, Adam and Eve made wrong choices. They chose to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong, and because of that, sin entered into the world, along with the penalty of death. By the grace of God, we can be saved from that penalty. You see, Jesus Christ, the Creator Himself, came to this little earth, this little speck floating in space. He paid that penalty, and He offers eternal life for those who call on Him. Through His amazing grace, you can be a part of His family. If you would like to be eternally His, call upon His name. He will change your life forever. I'm David Reeves. I want to remind you to keep looking up, because truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. Hello, I'm David Reeves, host of the TV show Creation in the 21st Century on TBN and the Heavens Declare video series. Each week we talk about breaking discoveries in science which reveal that our Creator, the God of the Bible, has left a pattern of His fingerprints throughout the universe. Engage with other like-minded believers through the Creation Club. This website offers thousands of articles written by scores of authors in multiple languages. Sign up to get our free monthly magazine delivered to your door. Want more? Genesis Science Network is our free 24-7 TV network, reaching millions of people around the world on internet, Roku, Fire TV, and mobile devices. Shop over a thousand books and videos on the Creation Superstore, the world's largest origins-related store. Visit our Wonders of Creation Center and sign up for email updates to have encouraging articles sent straight to your inbox. Like us on Facebook for daily inspiration and education regarding science and the Bible.